Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the spring of 1775, the British General Thomas Gage set his sights on the countryside of Massachusetts. After receiving permission from England to use force against rebel Americans if necessary, the British designed a harrowing mission to capture and confiscate a cache of illegal Patriot firearms stored in the tiny village of Concord. While the British prepared their march, rebel leadership fled for their lives, and a Patriot leader named Paul Revere spread his message straight into history. At the end of the day, the American Rebellion had taken a bloody turn as they and their Imperial Masters clashed in not one, but two terrible battles. On this episode, we discuss the battles of Lexington and Concord. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. So far in our discussion of the American Revolutionary Era, things have been relatively tame. Battles have been few, and they've been largely in the political realm. But today, things change. Today, the game is afoot. Today is the day that author Ralph Waldo Emerson will describe as the day that saw the shot heard around the world. Of course, I'm talking about Lexington and Concord, two events that are seminal in our American DNA, almost built into the genetic social properties of the American people as it stands. But what was this event? Why did it happen? How did it happen? Remember, it didn't happen in some never-never land. It didn't happen in some fantasy world. It happened here, and it happened as an engagement between normal people acting in unusual or abnormal ways. Remember, don't make this a fantasy. Don't make this mythology. Don't make this uh, a fable or a narrative. Tell the story as it was. And look for the mechanisms that applied at the time. Mechanisms, mind you, that we still see in our own world today in many different places. One of the things I say over and over and over again this season is that as historians, and we don't do this enough, we have to remove ourselves from this story, the story of the American Revolution. It's very easy to make this uh, our revolution or a revolution of the familiar. But what we want to do is step away. As imperial historians, we need to look at this as a rebellion in an empire nothing more. Take your emotions out of it, take your heart out of it, you'll see a whole new dimension to the story. And as I always say as well, I think it makes the story all that much more impressive. Well, the situation today is going to be completely surrounding the city of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, 
We've talked a little bit about already the situation in Massachusetts. It's not a very good one. It's not very good for the British. It's not very good for the American rebels. But it is what it is. Since 1768, the British military has effectively been occupying the city of Boston. They're under the impression that the only colony in rebellion is Massachusetts. Not New York, not Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. So they believe in the mistake that we always make throughout human history. That if you occupy the primary city of the region, province, or colony, you effectively subdue the entire thing. Of course, that's not the case. By the time we get to the year 1775, a new status quo has emerged in the colony of Massachusetts. The British rule over Boston with total control. Their soldiers march in the streets, but things are nonviolent. It hasn't been five years since the Boston Massacre of 1770. That was the last major flare-up of bloodshed that really resulted in multiple fatalities between the two sides, rebel and imperial. But now, in 1775, the game has changed. Boston has effectively been cleared out of its anti-imperial rebels. The reason being, that's just not a place you can safely meet anymore without being found out, without being rooted out by the British Imperials, and punished for your sedition against your empire. It's an amazing thing that a lot of this anti-imperial anxiety and anger was held not in public, effectively, not you know in an open invitation, so you no longer really feel safe to talk about how you can express your open and public uh, disagreements with the powers that be without being punished for it. Well, because of that, really, uh, if you could leave and you were an anti-imperialist, you would. If you can't, you stay behind. Most can. So Boston, as an occupied city, is really now a city of uh, friendly British peoples. I mean, you still have people who are angry at the empire, people who, for whatever reason, can't leave. Uh, but the majority of the real uh, brain trust behind this new rebel movement has fled the city. People like Samuel Adams, people like John Hancock, uh, will disappear, melt away into the countryside of the colony, uh, effectively going on ground where they can continue their campaign against the empire uh, in whatever way possible by 1775. Well, the interesting thing that really develops in Boston in 1775, and I think this is very fascinating amongst any insurgent movement, is that many of the people involved in these often shadowy experiments do so in plain sight. They hide in plain sight. They don't necessarily have to be secretive, dark figures that lurk in the shadows, but they do it very openly. And because of their reputation otherwise, the ruling power, in this case the British, never really know the difference. Here's a great example. There's a man in Boston that most people in the American colonies, and even some people in Europe, would know very well. His name is Paul Revere. Now, I guarantee you probably know that name amongst any other name in this time period. But who was Paul Revere? Well, we know him for what we're going to talk about today. But here's what I think makes the story so much more compelling. Paul Revere was a very public figure in Boston in the 18th century. His father was an expert craftsman. He himself is known as the finest silversmith in the colonies. That means if you're going to be wealthy, if you're going to be affluent, if you own the best silver, you own Paul Revere 
silver. He makes things like utensils, he makes things like carafes, uh, teapots, uh, servingware, fine things. Clearly, by the way I'm describing them, I don't use. Um, but that's Paul Revere. Um, he's a very notable guy. Anyone in, in Boston would have known who he is. Very few of them probably would have known that he was part of this secretive anti-imperialist cabal of power brokers in the city of Boston. So it's compelling that whenever most of these, uh, we'll call them rebel leaders, for lack of a better term, that being what they are, leave the city, Paul Revere stays behind. He, along with a man named William Dawes, will effectively act as the eyes and ears, you can say, of the rebel movement after you have this mass exodus uh, of leadership from the city. Now, this is going to take us to April of 1775, at a moment when tensions between the Bostonians and the British are seemingly at their highest moment. Earlier in January, the Earl of Dartmouth, uh, who was Secretary of State, uh, effectively, for the American colonies, sent a letter to Thomas Gage, the general who was commanding now under martial law all of the colony of Massachusetts saying that you can use force if necessary, for the first time, uh, if necessary, an official directive against the people of the colony if they are deemed to be unruly, troublesome, and most importantly, a direct threat to the British army in the region. Now, the Earl of Dartmouth will send this in January. Gage won't receive it until April. Now, that seems like a terrible delay, and it is, but remember, this is an age without the internet. This is an age without the telephone. This is a time when communication really as, is as fast, you can say, as a boat can travel across the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a time where information moves very slowly, and most responses have to develop very quickly. Well, Gage will not receive this directive until April 18th, 1775. And when he gets it, he jumps into action immediately. And the reason he does is because he's been gathering intelligence over the last several months about the brewing, nasty situation in his colony. He knows that the uh, American rebels are holding a large cache of weapons and ammunition expressly for the purpose of using it against the British when the time comes. From the American viewpoint, if the time comes. But they're there nevertheless. And Gage uh, will take it upon himself to go out and remove these uh, potentially dangerous materials uh, to eliminate and neutralize the threat to his own men. Now, in the previous episode of Wartime, we've talked about this a little bit. We'll touch on it again. But this is a very common event in the grander scheme of anti-insurgency or counter-insurgency warfare. Find the weapons that the hostiles are set to use against you and eliminate those weapons. Reason being, no matter how much they don't like you, they can't use them against you. So for Gage, this is a very practical thing. Find these guns, get rid of them, uh, ensure the protection of your men, and take the sting out of the bee, so to speak, when you deal with the American rebels. Well, he's going to engage his men to begin their march uh, very quickly uh, on the next day. And he's going to do this at night. Now, right away, when you hear that movement's going on, this seems like a very 
bad and very unusual scene for the American rebels hiding in the countryside. But here's something we don't talk about enough. This is really, as far as Gage marching troops out of Boston into the countryside sinking contraband weapons, really not that big of a deal. I mean, it is a major event, but anyone who lived in the countryside would tell you that this is a fairly routine exercise after going on seven years of occupation by the British Empire, uh, employed by Gage here in 1775. Nobody really suspected uh, that this particular march would be any more deadly or any more violent than they had been before, and the fact is they really weren't. Soldiers would march out of the city, they'd find nothing, and they'd come back home empty-handed. That's really how it went down. So whenever the rebels hear about this in the countryside, they don't expect much from it otherwise. What they do see for the first time is that Gage's army appears to be at 700 men strong, much bigger than anything they've ever done before. And quite frankly, tensions have never been higher than they have been now. So it's sort of like the idea that each time Gage would go out on these patrols, uh, he would face a more angry enemy. And the people who are watching the patrols coming at them, the Americans, would feel that with each passing day, their liberties are infringed upon more and more. So, again, we get back to what I think is one of the overarching themes of this entire uh, season, is that you have a real disconnect in terms of intention and action between the two sides, which will lead itself to be, of course, very costly. Now, the morning of April 18th, uh, one of the things you'd see across Massachusetts, especially within, say, 10 miles of Boston, is that many, many British patrols are going through the countryside asking very specific questions about men like Samuel Adams and men like John Hancock, especially their whereabouts. Now, whenever Hancock and Adams fled the city as a result of this newly approaching British crackdown on patriot leadership, the place where they took cover was a small town called Lexington, Massachusetts. They had family there, and they sort of ran the, the Rebel Brain Trust from that location. Well, whenever the troops are gearing up to move, most Bostonians are under the impression uh, that the target of these new of these new patrols is to find the Rebel leadership and bring them in for questioning. A pretty common counterinsurgency tactic. But when you go to the actual sources you can see exactly what the target was all along. The man that Thomas Gage chose to lead this particular British mission into the countryside was a man named Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith. And when you look at the correspondence between the two, Gage is very clear on what he wants Smith to accomplish. He says, quote, With utmost expedition and secrecy to Concord, where you will seize and destroy all military stores, but you will take care that the soldiers do not plunder the inhabitants or hurt private property. It's very clear when this expedition sets out on April 18th of 1775, the British are specifically ordered, capture the weapons, capture the dangerous contraband, do not hurt anyone, and do not destroy any property otherwise. Remember, Gage is trying to keep a delicate balance here. He wants to maintain a peaceful situation, scenario, I guess you can say, in Massachusetts, and still eliminate the very clear and present dangers to his own men. Well, that will be, in many ways, where the disconnect occurs. Because when the troops begin to march out of the city... Uh, they'll be perceived entirely differently. 
So where does Paul Revere come into this? We touched on this a little bit in the last episode, but I want to spend a little more time on it now. Remember I said that when the majority of the Patriot leadership left the city, Paul Revere, a major player in this story, stays behind. Also staying behind is a man named William Dawes. And the reason they stay behind is because they are going to be part of a much larger system of secretive and clandestine communication that will keep the countryside, the rebel leadership, abreast of exactly what's going on in Boston at the time. It's an incredible story for a lot of different reasons. I think one of the most important is that Paul Revere was a major, major player in this very contentious debate. And he moved in plain sight amongst the British who were seeking to find him. They never really had a good understanding that he was ever part of any Patriot leadership. Because he was, again, a notable artisan, a public figure. They all knew him. They probably respected him. Uh, they had no idea he was secretly operating against them the entire time. But here's how the story goes. If you ever visualize Boston uh, from the air today, if you're there today, you get a less sense of it. But if you can view it from up above, Google Earth, right take out the roads, take out the streets, view North America as a landmass. Boston sits on the east coast of North America, and it sort of juts out like a peninsula. It's surrounded by water on three sides, and it's connected to the mainland by a very thin strip of land. The primary body of water that separates Boston from the rest of Massachusetts on the western edge is called the Charles River. Now again, the British are entirely entrenched on that peninsula. They're surrounded by water on three sides. It's both a strength and a weakness of the city. Well, if they're going to leave Boston, if they're going to march on the countryside, wherever they may be going, Concord, wherever, uh, they have two ways of doing it. They can either cross that skinny neck of land, uh, or they can cross the Charles River by ferry. Crossing the Charles River will be a much more direct route, a much faster route, obviously a little more difficult because of the crossing, but it would be the most expeditious route if they're trying to get a jump on these rebels and get these contraband weapons before it's too late. Now, the people who live in Massachusetts are no fools. They know this. There's only two ways in and out of Boston. So they've developed a secretive communication system to alert one another uh, based on which direction the troops will move because that has a lot to do with how you react to it. One of the men who operates in plain sight, much like Paul Revere, largely in secret, of course, uh, is a man named Robert Newman. Robert Newman is the sexton of what we call today the Old North Church. The Old North Church is the tallest steeple in Boston, so anything that happens there can be seen for miles. For miles. And of course, what happens in a steeple? Well, you have church bells and you have lanterns. And Robert Newman, this seemingly benign old fellow of Boston, is going to be deeply involved in this communication system. If the British march by land, he's going to put one lantern on April 18th in the, in the steeple of the Old North Church. If they go by sea, he's going to put two lanterns. Now, if you're British, if you're in Boston, there's lanterns in a church tower. Big deal. So what? That always happens. But if you're in the know, if you're part of this underground communication network, you see this entirely differently. And again, this is how a seemingly small, outnumbered, overmatched group of rebels can compete with the world's largest and most powerful military. Secretive actions. Uh, clandestine operations. Well, sure enough, on April 18th, that late at night, right, midnight-ish, um, the British will load themselves onto barges, not meant to be troop transports, mind you, but more commercial barges. And they'll move 700 men 
out of Boston, across the Charles River, to the mainland of Massachusetts. And, of course, Robert Newman will put his two lanterns in the steeple. There we have the old mantra, one if by land, two if by sea. Um, Americans can recite it off by heart, even though very few of them have a really clear sense of what exactly they're talking about. A pretty devious tactic overall. But when the British move their men, they're moving 700 men. And those 700 men are under the command of, as we've already mentioned, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith. Now, Smith is sort of the overarching commander of the entire expedition, but it will really befall the lesser commanders throughout the army. Men like Major John Pitcairn, uh, someone much more closely associated with the soldiers involved to really lead this expedition. Now, the way that Gage builds his army, not to get too much into this, but hey, we're here. It's sort of interesting. He takes uh, men from 11 of the 13 regiments in Boston. Not all of them, of course, but picking and choosing, volunteers mostly, from 11 of those 13 regiments, and kind of compiles them into this 700-man motley force of British regulars. There's British, there's Irish, there's English, you name it, they're all there. Most of these men are so bored from being in Boston for so long, they just want to get out and go into the countryside, seeking some kind of excitement. Uh, but they never really gel well together. They never have a really effective way of communicating with each other, and this is going to come back and, and hurt them in a big way. But as the British begin their march, the amazing story begins. Paul Revere and William Dawes will both break for the countryside. William Dawes will go the southward land route across that bottleneck, rolling into the countryside, alerting people also in the know in the rebel cause that the British are coming. Paul Revere actually gets into a boat and crosses the Charles River long before the British ever do. Passes the HMS Somerset, that massive warship that was there. Uh, almost gets caught, and then also goes into the countryside on a northward route. And the two men will move through Massachusetts until they converge in a pincher movement, and they'll continuously spread the word throughout. Now, the way it basically works is they don't tell everyone, uh, but they tell a handful of people who then tell a handful of people who then tell a handful of people. And before you know it, effectively, uh, the entire countryside of Massachusetts now understands the British are coming. Uh, they never really would have said that because, you know, it's 1775, they're all British. They would have said something like, the regulars are coming out. The British are coming doesn't make a lot of sense. It's written way later after the event, almost a century later. Uh, and it's the regulars are coming out, not the British are coming. But at any rate, um, before Gage and his men even cross the Charles River, most of the countryside of Massachusetts knows they're coming. The folks in Concord know the British are on the march. They get those weapons that are supposedly the target of the event, and they disperse them amongst the community at large. Um, what I'm trying to say is, for this expedition to work, the British needed secrecy to be their key element. And they've lost it. They've lost the element of secrecy. They've lost the element of time. Now, as Dawes and Paul Revere ride throughout the countryside of Massachusetts, if you can visualize this, and please get a map, because I'm trying to do it myself, and quite frankly, a, a map is worth much more than anything I could describe. There's one primary road that connects what we can say Boston and the area around Boston and the further westernmost cities like Lexington and Concord, and that road will run directly through a very small place called Lexington, Massachusetts. Well, as Paul Revere and William Dawes are making their ride toward Lexington to, to spread the word to the rebel leadership, here's part of the story we never really hear. Paul Revere's actually captured 
by the British for what he's doing. They have sentry posts in the countryside to make sure that something exactly like what we're seeing now doesn't happen. Now, if it's so secretive, why were they ever even aware that something like this could go down? Well, because what Paul Revere was doing is not exactly reinventing the wheel. That system of communication, that person-to-person -person line of communication we're describing, has been in place in Massachusetts for a very long time, normally having to do with Indian wars from previously in the century. So there we go again, the frontier playing a big role here. They knew what was going on. They knew what probably would happen. Paul Revere was caught. Paul Revere was arrested. Paul Revere was questioned. And even worse than that, he and his fellow riders who are arrested and taken into custody give up the whole thing. They basically say, listen, if you ride deeper into the countryside, the people know you're coming. Turn your men around. You're walking into certain death. You will walk into gunfire, they're saying. You will walk into a threat. The British hear gunfire in the distance. They hear bells ringing in the distance, and they ask these men, what are we hearing? And they're saying, this is the warning we're telling you about. You're walking into danger. Now, those British sentries, those regulars that capture Revere, that discover this plot, have to make a decision. Do they hold these men in custody, or do they disregard them and get the information back to the, to the overall British command in Boston where it needs to be before it's too late? They actually let Paul Revere go. They let him go. Amazing story. He gives up the whole thing. They let him go. He proceeds to Lexington. He meets with John Hancock and Samuel Adams. He alerts them to the problem at hand. The regulars are coming. They disperse deeper into the countryside. So what we now have is a major British force moving toward a very small town called Lexington, Massachusetts. Now, Lexington's not their target. Their target's Concord, which is basically on the same road, uh, about twice the distance away. But you can't get to Concord without first getting to Lexington. So as fate will have it, as history will dictate, you're going to see the very uh, first major confrontation in 1775 between British regular army forces and American rebel forces at that location on that morning. As we move forward, the stage is set, and I'm going to break the narrative with some helpful information, I think, hopefully, uh, as we move forward to understand this story a little better. So what is the scene we have? Well, you have 700 British regular soldiers under the impression that they're simply marching to collect weapons and go home on a very long, narrow road that stretches basically through the heart of the Massachusetts colony. Not a big colony, but it's a long march. They've been marching throughout the night. They left in the wee hours of the morning. It's now almost daybreak, and they're approaching a very, very small town, but notable, known as Lexington, Massachusetts. It will be much more notable after this event, probably, than it was before. As they move into Lexington, I want you to envision this scene. The road will move into the town and then split into two. It'll split into a fork. Those two roads will eventually rejoin shortly thereafter. But what they what they create between the forks uh, is a large uh, open space shaped like a right triangle. The 90 degree angle of the triangle is facing north. The hypotenuse is facing south. I never thought I would use those terms in this podcast. But hey, we surprise ourselves. And it's sort of a common area for the town of Lexington. Lexington is not a big place. Um, but it's, I think, very typical of a New England town uh, in the 17th and 18th century. As the 700 men march, 
an advanced column of men under the command of Major Pitcairn, who we mentioned earlier, will take about 250 regulars and they'll approach the town. Now, they're not expecting trouble, not necessarily, but they find it. Remember, all across the Massachusetts countryside, people are preparing for this British advance. How they're preparing, what they're expecting, that's all up in the air, but they know they're coming. So what you have waiting for them in Lexington, on what we call Lexington Green, that large triangular-shaped piece of ground, uh, which is created by the separation of the roads, is about 80 men under the command of a man named John Parker. Now, John Parker, command of John Parker, these are all relative terms. This is not an army. These are irregulars. These are guerrilla fighters. Uh, these are insurgent warriors, as it'll turn out. Now, they don't know if there's a fight coming. But they know the British are, so they're going to make a stand against them. Eighty men, all from Lexington and the surrounding countryside, are awaiting the arrival of the British. It's not clear what they're awaiting exactly, what they think will happen. But by all accounts, John Parker told these men, Stand firm, stand in position, don't budge, but never, never attack, unless you're fired upon first. Now, in my opinion, John Parker and his men really aren't looking for a fight, these American rebels, as they stand on Lexington Green. I don't think they are. Um, if you look at how they're standing, how they're arranged, they are not blocking the primary road to Concord. I think more than anything else, uh, they were making, again, in an age of gesture politics, a political statement. We're standing here with our guns. We're standing in parade formation. We won't impede your progress. But we do want you to know we're serious about defending our rights. Uh, I don't think fighting was ever part of the story. When you look at what John Parker, this patriot leader, tells them, I think he's very clear. He says, do not fire unless you're fired upon. Do not make any movements uh, that would lend the British to think you're about to fire on them. Again, I think he's very clearly trying to make a statement, but not trying to let things get out of hand. But when the British arrive... They take the initiative, and I really think push this uh, this what could be very problematic scenario into a very bad place. When Pitcairn, the British commander, arrives with his 250 advance guard of this larger 700-man body, rather than simply marching past Lexington Green, which he very well could have done, he very well could have done, uh, he turns his men and he makes. Uh, what is effectively a frontal assault on them. Now, no one's shooting. It's very clear, I think, he wants to make a statement of his own by disarming the rebels. He sees these rebels standing in formation. He's personally insulted. I think he loses his head a bit. And he tells his men, get those weapons off of these people. He calls them villains. He says, drop drop ye guns, ye villains. Um, and they move on the Americans. Now, Parker, the American commander, the entire time is telling his men, do not fire. Do not fire. Even in some cases, he's telling them, retreat, retreat. Uh, because this was not meant to be any sort of battle in any way. And now you have two very small forces, 80 Americans, 250 British, coming together. Some of the men trickle away from the battlefield on the American side. Some of them are confused. Some of them hang around. And here's where time stops, as far as we're concerned in this episode. Somebody opens fire. Somebody opens fire. To this day, we don't know who. If you ask the Americans, they will say a British regular soldier opened fire. If you ask the regulars themselves, they'll say, of course, the rebels opened fire. We don't know. But this is known as... The shot heard round the world. 
And the reason that Ralph Waldo Emerson, a century later, will call it that is because many will symbolically view this as the opening salvo of the American Revolution. Now, hopefully you've gotten by this point to see that there are many, many, many opening shots to this war, simply because it's been building for the better part of a decade. But we can read from the journals of John Parker, the patriot leader himself, and we can see exactly his take on things. He says, quote, I ordered our militia to meet on the common, and in said Lexington to consult what to do, and concluded not to be discovered, nor meddle or make with said regular troops, if they should approach, unless they should insult or molest us. And, upon their sudden approach, I immediately ordered our militia to disperse, and not to fire. Think of that, and not to fire. Immediately said troops made their appearance and rushed furiously, fired upon, and killed eight of our party, without receiving any provocation, therefore, from us. So, here's John Parker. In the time, at the age, a moment that will live throughout history of this uh, of this American nation, where he could very easily say, I ordered the shot, the British uh, were defeated, and so on and so forth. But he clearly says, even after the event, clearly fearing some kind of repercussions, I ordered them specifically not to fire. He says it. He's adamant about it. I ordered them specifically not to fire. He could have taken the reins of glory for himself, but he doesn't. And it shows you just what's at stake in this world. Now, what occurs at Lexington um, is is much more of a skirmish than a battle. I mean, we don't want to use that term battle too much because a battle means a lot to me as a historian. It really means uh, a lot of very precise troop movements. It means a lot of planning. It means a lot of engagement. What happened at Lexington Green between 80 Americans and, and 250 British uh, was much more of a melee. It was a chaos. It was a firing uh, on Lexington Green. If you've ever been to Lexington Green, I encourage you to go. It's a national park. Um, it's a, a, a fairly small place. I mean, you're not talking about a lot of maneuvering here, but it's very clear now uh, that this whole circumstance uh, has now taken itself to another level. After the fighting subsides, the British will continue on. The Americans will disperse, and they'll get back to their original objective of capturing those guns at Concord. Little do they know, that small skirmish that's just occurred, really uh, a comedy of errors in many ways, is about to lead to what I consider to be really one of the first major engagements of the war. That, in its own right, uh, is a bit confusing. So here's effectively what you see for the Battle of Concord. The British will continue past Lexington uh, until they get to the city itself. And by the time they get there, of course... The people of Concord are well aware that they're on their way. Not only are they aware they're on their way, but most of the contraband material is gone. Now, something else has happened as well after Lexington. Of all of the gunshots and bells and Paul Revere types spreading the word that the British are marching that night, one of the things that happened at Lexington was that Lexington itself was kind of the single greatest warning of them all. Because it drew people out of their homes for the first time, really to engage in this battle. Groups of people we describe as the Minute Men. Now, you've maybe heard that before, Minute Men, but here's the basic idea. And it's something that is the great strength of any insurgent army against a traditional, tactically, military force in all of history. The British are wearing uniforms. The British are wearing regal red. They have standard-issue rifles. They all have the same thing. That's the strength of the army. But the Americans aren't. The Americans aren't wearing uniforms. The Americans aren't dressing like an army would dress. 
Uh, they call themselves Minutemen because they go from whatever they were doing before, whether it be a farmer or a blacksmith or, or, a, or a banker, whatever you want to say, to a soldier. In the snap of your fingers, in a minute, they become it. So they don't wear uniforms, and therefore you don't know exactly if you're British who your enemy is until it's too late. Well, that's the strength of it. And the British, all the while they were marching, had no idea how many Americans were actually willing to shoot at them. I mean, they see lots of people on the way there, but how many of these people are enemies and how many are just average British citizens? They don't know. What I'm saying is, when the British are marching toward Concord, it leaves them with a great deal of uncertainty and dread hanging over the entire expedition. We can't discredit or discount that idea. The fact that when they're marching toward Concord, the British really don't know what to expect. And they really aren't sure what's at stake. Well, certainly enough, they arrive on scene. Concord is not abandoned but most of the usable materials out of it. And just outside of the city, across the Concord River, uh, crossed by something called the Old North Bridge, is a collection of about 200 to 250 Minutemen waiting for them, watching. They abandon the city, because again, they don't know what to expect either. And the British will, against their own orders, begin to burn down storehouses, supply depots, probably much more than they should have, at least from... Thomas Gage, who's back in Boston's initial uh, recommendations, but they lay waste to the city. Now, when that happens, the Americans will rush off the hill uh, toward the old North Bridge, toward the Concord River, and there we see a bit of a standoff, uh, to say the least. You have the British regular soldiers on one side of the bridge and the Americans on the other, and the fight will largely be held, as all great battles are, over controlling this one bottleneck of a bridge itself. Now, the fighting will occur tactically. Uh, the commander of the British forces, who's already sent back to Boston for help, help that's not coming, as he's as far as he's concerned, uh, will order his men into a, what we call uh, into a street firing position, which basically means if you're in a city and you're the British Army, you line up in one long straight line and you shoot into the buildings. That way. You know, chance will have it. Bullets will break down alleyways. You'll attack your enemies. Well, that's not an ideal situation for fighting uh, with one army on one side of the bridge and your army on the other. And, of course, what occurs is the British will break ranks and they'll retreat back to Boston. Now, think about it from the British perspective. They were told very clearly, under no circumstances, should you shoot or kill anyone. They were told that, and they've already had something of a skirmish at Lexington, and now a full-scale battle at Concord. They've clearly gone above and beyond what they're required to do, and maybe, maybe broke some laws along the way. Not only that, but they're losing at this battle to stand off at Concord Bridge, and they have almost no uh, contraband weapons, powder, or supplies to show for it. So what they do is return back to Boston, uh, because they don't know what the next move is. No one would approve such a drastic and violent venture as open warfare against your own citizens. It's unheard of. They're not prepared to do it. They turn back. While the American rebels have no idea what's going on, they're not in their enemies' heads, and from what the, their vantage point, it seems like a major victory, and they're as surprised as anyone. The Americans can't believe at Concord. They are shocked that the mighty British are turning and running. They can't believe it. It's a major celebration for them as far as they're concerned. Uh, when you look at the uh, death figures 
of the Battle of Lexington and Concord combined, you see a very unique story emerge. And both sides are going to use this uh, as their own little bit of propaganda along the way. The British will lose about 250 men, 250 casualties, and almost 20 officers, 19. American losses are no more than 90. So from the American vantage point, not only do they win this amazing and surprising battle at Concord, um, but they seem to have got the upper hand on the entire day at both Lexington and Concord and empowers a lot of people in a very real way in the countryside of Massachusetts toward rebellion more than ever before. For the British, they need a post-mortem here. They need to know where they went wrong. Because all the time they're retreating back to Boston, people are taking pot shots at them along the way. Newly empowered American rebels. It happens that fast. Now, one of the really important things I, I want to impress upon you when we talk about something like Lexington and Concord, but this applies to all history. This applies to every episode of wartime we've ever done. Every book you've ever read, every movie or television show you've ever seen regarding history. What I want you to understand is there is so much more to what we just talked about, so much more than we have time to go into. When you look at the British retreat back to Boston, for example, uh, on that road, there's one small town after another. Well, people have studied the retreat to Boston in such detail that in between each town, you have an entirely new set of events that really are treated as their own individual phenomenon in many ways. We just said on the retreat back to Boston, the Americans were shooting at the British. That made a very complicated subject very, very easy to understand. Sometimes you have to do that. I'm not discrediting it, saying it's not important. What I am saying is, as a historian, you have a limited amount of time and space. You can't tell the whole story, so you have to hit the high notes. But remember, those are still notes worthy to be hit in between, so it's important. While the long and short of it is this, after Lexington and Concord, the British over the next several days will retreat to Boston. Thousands thousands of Massachusetts Patriot militiamen will pour in and around the city of Boston until you get to over 15,000 men. And here's the standoff. The British are isolated on the small peninsula of Boston itself. All of their forces are located there. All around them are 15,000 angry and now very capable and now very willing participants of the American cause, uh, anxious to pick up a rifle and fire. Back in Philadelphia, the Continental Congress has met yet again. We call them the Second Continental Congress. And when they see this rabble of Patriot militia surrounding Boston, they have no choice but to decide that this is our army, and it'll be a Continental Army. Now, armies are only as effective as their leadership. The last thing you want if you're the Continental Congress in Philadelphia is to have uh, an entire group of angry citizens without some kind of disciplined leadership. The Continental Congress realizes, whether we like it or not, we now have an army. We need someone in command. Who do they choose? Well, they look at the people amongst their ranks, and they see one man uh, with significant military experience, who, by the way, is almost six foot four and wearing a military uniform, and it's the Virginian, George Washington. Washington comes to Philadelphia, I think, with the express purpose of getting this job. He wants it. He wears a military uniform in a room full of politicians. They select George Washington. They immediately send him to Boston. And in their minds, whether they like it or not, whether they're ready or not, the war is on. On the next episode, we talk about the year 1775. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.